Hello, wherever you are, and welcome to episode two of the We Want to Sound Smart at Parties podcast. As always, the best way to support the podcast is to tell a friend and to visit us at smartatparties.com. On today's episode, we learn about Soft Hands, Time Machine the Musical, Morlocks, Nicolas Cage's Final Resting Place, The Fate of Weena, and that if you time travel, you might want to come back with something other than a measly set of flowers for a room full of skeptics. All this and more on part two of two of H.G. Birdie Wells' 1895 novel, The, the Time, time Machine. Books? <laughs> yeah, right. There's just no the time to revisit the relics of yesterday. It's written only to override everything. Have you ever tried to date a Too much work. I can barely remember now, what I had for It's breakfast. been proven that reading and retaining require muscles and frequently enough to train contractions of the promoting something so secular. Unless you're in the grammar erotica. And an expansive The digital age has auctioned our attention span off the scale. Well, honestly, this kind of sounds like homework to me. But I guess it wouldn't hurt sense. We want to sound smart at parties. Hello, friends. Uh, good afternoon. Good evening. Salutations. Uh, welcome to We Want to Sound Smart at Parties, episode two. I'm your host, um, Bjorn Bro. And then we have Taylor Brown on research. Hey, Taylor Brown. Hi. I research and read. And Alex Moore on color commentary today. Color commentary, all the hues, all the gradients. Here we go. So, you know, this is the problem. We're already, we're already deviating into other smaller responsibilities yeah. we don't need smaller responsibilities speaking of responsibilities let me tell you guys i am feeling like i just got shot out of birdie's big boy on a drug trip because Woo! guess who well i didn't watch the whole movie but guess who looked up clips of the time machine movie <laughs> on youtube you did a little homework i did a little homework you don't don't think you guys are the one, only ones who can do research. And hey, P.S. Yeah, go ahead. You, it's been eleven days since we did part. Hey, one. don't tell and you people could, this. Don't tell. And people you can this. only look up clips of the movie. You could have watched the whole thing. I'm a busy man. Get out of here. Pulled up clips on YouTube. Yeah, no one wants to watch this movie. But let me let me tell you guys a little something about my research. Just like Taylor Brown uh, last episode unearthed the fact about the sparrows that the sparrows show up a little a little sparrow on a, a little skewer. sparrow kebab that's a little right sparrow kebab. just like he unearthed that little tidbit i unearthed this tidbit that i'm about to drop on you let me set the stage guys okay the time traveler is in the movie in the film in the feature film i don't know if it's in the book but he comes across what is basically a future google amazon or well sorry alexa google voice style computer it is inhabited by a uh a full-size actor and whereby they get meta they go for they break the fourth wall they start talking about the time machine book itself and the musical there's a musical there's a time machine musical let me just play you this clip right now get ready get ready gents you're about to have your minds blown this is in the film this is in the film i'm not making this up here it goes Time Machine was written by H.G. Wells in 1894. It was later adapted to a motion picture by George Powell and a stage musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber, which no, ran on Broadway for what I mean. years. Would you like to hear selections from the score? No. There's a place called Tomorrow, a place of joy. Not of sorrow, can't you see? It's a place for Thank you. Thank you. That's quite enough. It's a place for you and me. It's a musical by, how, uh, by uh, someone who sounded important and Bernstein. I don't like it. <laughs> wow. Okay, so in the film, they break the fourth wall by talking about the time machine, not only the novella, but also the Guy Pierce vehicle, which you, that you are watching. Right, it's and the, yeah, that movie. 
Wow. But also okay. the elements within the movie itself that brought the movie to... Okay, here's the clip description. <laughs> Far from his own time, Alexander, played by Guy Pierce, consults the Fifth Avenue Public Library to see what information on time travel the future can provide. So he's cheating already. And his efforts are stymied uh, by the library's interactive reference protocol, Vox, played by Orlando Jones. This is really strange. First of all, he doesn't. This does not happen in the novella. Uh, and secondly, there's Are you no sure though, because because yes. you guys missed the sparrows. No, so I'm just I, Orlando I'm Jones everything. was not in the book. First of all, I missed the sparrows. Taylor okay. didn't miss the sparrows. Got it, because he's the um, researcher. But yeah, because he's the man. He's the host, even though we're all hosts because we're, all hosts. we're in this new age of communism in the year eight hundred thousand to seven hundred and one. But they also gave him a name. Which is my name. So, is this a sign? Oh, they did give the time traveler a name of Alexander. Alexander. In the movie, perhaps. they did. You have to do that for movie purposes. It's a law, it's a Hollywood rule. It's what they call it a Hollywood rule. That's I fair. didn't know there were yeah. Hollywood rules. Um, yeah, well, you, when you, 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 once you get into Hollywood, they tell you. So. Oh, it's kind of like Scientology, where you have to be like OT level 14 before you get to know that Xenu... Uh, it's not like Scientology. No, it's not like Scientology. It is Scientology. Oh, because it's Hollywood. That's right. There you go. Right. We, got there. We, got, we got there together. Oh, my God. The Hollywood Manifesto. I'm just feeling stoked, though, guys, uh, that I found something that you guys didn't, and my research conceivably is a little bit better at this juncture, just because of this big this big time bomb I dropped on you guys. But I saw that movie when it came out 18 years ago. Oh, nice. I'm also, you know, in addition to being excited about that, you know, I got to tell you, I am, I am terse, like Alex's sexuality right now wow. about hearing part two. So if you remember from episode one, because most people probably are listening to this back to back, not 11 days later, we uh, found our intrepid time traveler, Sans Mutton, Sans Mutton. Sans Mutton in a new world, 800,000 um, years away, which seems ill-advised. He has now misplaced his time machine inside of a white sphinx. He's got a little person who he thinks are the only people on the planet. Maybe one that he might want to fuck. Weena. That's Weena. right. And he might want to fuck Weena. And some ghosts. By the way, another thing you guys didn't, uh, when I listened back to the episode, is... Y- it, you explained to me that in the beginning, um, our time traveler also talked about ghosts at Christmas. So this is like his mo. This is his thing. He's a this is he's a ghost thing. dude. He's a ghost you know? dude. So now he's lost his time machine. He's sans mutton. He's maybe trying to fuck Weena. He's rage yelled at the people. And where we left off was the introduction of a brand new race in the future called the Morlocks. <laughs> I am ready to time travel. Take it away, Taylor Brown. Well, there comes to a point where he he does see a one of these former ghosts up close, and um, he doesn't really get a good glimpse of it. It's really just red eyes and pale hair, kind of freaky looking. Um, but this whole blurry vision he gets spawns a topsy-turvy interpretation of everything he once knew now being wrong. And he says, So in the end, above ground, you must have the haves, pursuing pleasure and comfort and beauty, and below ground the have-nots, the workers getting continually adapted to the conditions of their labor. 
it had been no such triumph of moral education and general cooperation as I had imagined. Instead, I saw a real aristocracy, armed with perfected science and a working to a logical conclusion, the industrial system of today. Its triumph had not simply been a triumph over nature, but a triumph over nature and the fellow man. So that is the kind of big <laughs> realization that what he thought was a communist utopia is in fact the complete opposite. It's a capitalistic dystopia where the proletariat and the bourgeoisie are so distinctly divided that they're two different subspecies of human at this point. Right. What? Are you kidding me? I mean, oftentimes I feel about that. I feel that way when I look at people who shop at Vaughn's or something. Right. Well, like and mind Whole you, he comes sprouts, to these big overarching conclusions <laughs> just by seeing one of these weird looking people that's scared of the light run by him and flee down a well. That's it. So he, he made this whole birdie. Or I'm sorry, he's not Birdie again. To be clear, from last episode is is H. G. Wells' family nickname, and we right. call the machine call the Birdie the machine, Big Boy. The Birdie's Big right. Boy, and right. the time is the time traveler is really the character we're talking about. So the time traveler, I mean, he has a penchant for making some pretty broad generalizations. So he does this again. Okay, his hypothesis on each class continues to be updated as new information dilutes his reasoning for siding with either class which we'll get to in a bit as far as siding with the classes, which I'm still a little confused about. But uh, to capitalize on this conversation about the introduction of the Morlocks, uh, as we discussed last time, uh, the Eloi, which was possibly garnered from uh, the Hebrew plural for Elohim last episode. Which I remembered, by the way, Alex, which makes me smarter, which means this podcast is working. It's working. We want to sound smart at parties. I, I, so, I, dude, wait till I drop that. Oh my God. Anyways, continue. In the same breath, the Morlocks, which are the troglodyte future descendants of workers, could have been the name could have possibly derived from Moloch, which is a term miners have been known to call themselves, coal miners. So we're talking about these, well, I guess we're not talking about it right now, and Taylor Brown's about to move us into the text about this huge underground tunneled ventilation system that the Morlocks live in. But the Morlock came from Moloch, which is a minor term. You can drop that too, Bjorn. I love this. I love both of you guys so much. This is going to be the most fun podcast. And, you know, I'm just excited for you, the listener, as well, because as we progress, we're obviously going to get better at this and we're going to get smarter. I promise you. And it's only going to get better. So the whole idea is becoming smarter or sound or at the bare minimum, just sounding smarter at parties, specifically at parties, specifically at parties, but really everywhere in life. And I hope that you come along with us on this ride and understand, especially after listening to the first podcast, you know, that we're, we're going to start, we're going to start fine tuning this bad boy. We, we encourage you to go to smartparties.com, hit us up on Twitter or Instagram or whatever the case may be for some ideas. Maybe you want us to read a book. I don't know, but I digress. Let's get back into the text, Taylor Brown. So he, he tries to talk to Weena about these creatures and She's not really having it because it scares her, obviously, because, oh, no, the pores are going to get me or whatever. By the way, he does mention earlier in the text that, you know, that the Eloi are wearing sandals and they do have clothes and they do have things that were made. So where are they coming from? 
Yeah, we talked about that last episode. It's kind of like the idea of I thought they were pets. And and Alex was explaining how if you were to look at pets just objectively, you'd be like, well, where did their food come from? Where did their right. you know, where did their collar come from? He his his explanation is that it's it, the Morlocks still make their sandals and their clothes, but out of some sort of duty or habit as opposed to some sort of societal necessity. Right. And speaking on the duty or habit, it, it he almost touches a little bit on some like some slave ideology, um, which is pretty curious because as he starts getting Careful. more inquisitive, no, oh no, no, no in I'm a just positive kidding. I'm kidding. way. <laughs> oh, um, slavery in a positive way? No, oh, no, okay, that's not. Sure. Yeah, okay, just give me a second, Bjorn. Um, <laughs> as he becomes more curious about these social arrangements, as Taylor Brown was just discussing, he compares. Uh, in his inner monologue, the time traveler, this being dumped in the future or his accidental dumping in the future to much as, or too much like uh, being plucked from central Africa and dropped in modern day London at the time uh, without any knowledge of modernity. And it's, it's strange because uh, Britain was always ahead of the States as far as a, the, the abolitionist movement. Uh, the 1833 Slavery Abolition Act was 30 years before the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. So as H.G. Wells was, as Taylor Brown noted in the first episode, a savage socialist, he was kind of ahead of the time um, in this, and I think was trying to make a distinction of the unhealthy modes of slavery when he was going through this curiosity about how this dutiful underground society was producing goods for the overworlders without much thought. Right. No. Well, labor is just an extension. Wage labor is being as an extension of slavery itself. Uh, you're, you know, and the idea of just prostituting yourself for for capital, and that's the, the the extreme of this is now some sort of underground civilization that does things almost out of rote mechanism, and where the aristocracy is not so much controlling as they are fearful although the aristocracy is always fearful of the people but they have no actual strength or show of force other than just being able to survive above ground because the morlocks cannot seem to survive in the light they're too pale which british people can definitely typically relate to absolutely yeah most anglo white folk is that why the alloy then are afraid of the dark because the 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 Morlocks only come out in the dark? Right. So they're, okay. we're about to get into the text where Taylor Brown's about to explain this massive system of underground tunnels. But uh, they've, they've developed, obviously, um, a, a, uh, an uncontrollable urge to flee from the light because of being forced um, into these underground shafts. And the time traveler describes these Morlocks as tiny, chinless, wide-eyed albino creatures with soft hands and a hunch physicality. <laughs> he had to throw in soft hands. It's soft just, hands, which is also a really like a strange slight. thing yeah. about the story. Taylor Brown, I don't know if if you picked up on this at all. Why? How could an underground society of these creatures who are uh, appeasing the Eloy have such soft hands <laughs> if they're just dealing with like these massive oiled machines 
under these these wells in this in this ventilation system. Well, that's we're gonna chalk. That's another plot hole because they're climbing up and down these shafts on hooks that are unstable and and dirty. And tunnels. they got soft ass hands. And they're dude. dealing with machines down there too. They do have machines, and they got. I had to. That's a. That's a. They got baby hands. How is that? It's making. It's, it there's make something about sense. the. There's something about the the phrase "soft hands" that just like in my child like. Look, man, he was churning out laugh. one of these books a year, and <laughs> yeah, that's right. He, you yeah, know, he wasn't he, thinking about he it. He did too much. pretty well, all things considered. There's some holes. We got the sparrows. We got the soft, soft hands, soft hands it. for the hardened <laughs> underground society. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make. And you know what else doesn't make sense is. Um, how the Morlocks haven't just completely overtaken the uh, Eloy at night when they're all asleep. Like what, or are the Morlocks just letting them breed in a controlled manner so that they continuously have, Oh, I'm, I'm jumping the gun here, but yeah, we're just, yeah. Don't, 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 don't say it. Don't say it. All right. Oh, so I'm going to jump back into the text. And so, yeah, so, yeah, let's, so oh we're going to follow Taylor sorry, Brown. I we're gonna follow Taylor I'm Brown. sidetracking myself. I'm the, I'm supposed to keep this uh, train moving on track. So, after he sees this first Morlock and he questions Wien about it and she's just giving him cold shoulders all day about it, it actually takes him a couple of days to kind of uh, work up the courage to go to go down the, the shaft um, just because he's so shook from the first encounter. Um, but then what he does, uh, he, uh, he, go, he decides to take a little trip down there and it's got these uh, unstable hooks kind of leading down. And it's about 200 yards into the shaft until he gets to the bottom. And this whole process takes up so much out of him that he just kind of passes out again. He's got a thing where he... <laughs> he, just he rage passes out. Yeah. He doesn't... He's got low endurance. He's got low <laughs> endurance. He can't... He wasn't... He doesn't have his mutton. No, he, doesn't. he doesn't have his fucking mutton. He's been off meat for days at this point. Yeah, it's, he's only on fruit. He's only By on the fruit. way, we're on day six. So oh, wow. where, where Taylor is kind of guiding us through the timeline, he doesn't see his first Morlock and or ghost is what he thinks he sees until four days in. And that's after like eating a bunch of fruit and trying to sleep and rage shaking these little people. Um, so he sees the first Morlock four days in. And then as Taylor said, it takes him two days to build up the gusto to go down the shaft 200 yards, you know, into the ground. And then what happens, Taylor Brown? So besides the soft hands, what happens? Which I feel like going down, it shouldn't take that much out of you, man. Like, you, no. you're going to fall asleep with all of these. Dude, it has rungs. With all of these, <laughs> with all these monsters around you. I just, I'm not buying it. But 200 yards is a par three. The guy can't go down a par three. I mean, give me a break. Man. Also, this is, why are the, it's, why aren't they using the metric system? That's a hole. Yeah, that's also really strange. Did we miss something about the Victorian era where they were they weren't relying on the metrics? Oh, God, that's a, I'll continue, put the Yeah, that, it. that's another it's plot a, hole. That's a plot hole. Well, so he only wakes up until. So wait a second before we move on. Oh, sorry, because everyone who's listening is gonna think we're idiots. They're not using the metric system primarily because it's 1895 and they're in jolly old fucking England, the inventors of the standard system where kings used to measure things by their feet and there was yards and there was all that stuff. <laughs> That's why. But Look I mean, at you uh, coming in hot with the info. That look, we clearly Bjorn. Should we give him a little round of applause for actually contributing something? We should. We should. We, we had really the movie should. clip. You're yeah, welcome. You I'm feeling clip. smart today, boys. You better be on your A game. I, you I mean, I will readily admit that I'm... I did not. I'm not really well versed in the metric systems adaptation into the, the British culture. 
Well, so he he's passed out until he feels one of those little baby soft hands touching his face. Touching his face. Touching also, his face. why why are they touching his face like that? <laughs> They're very gentle at first. It seems like. And I feel like they've, you know, they're already getting a bad rap. They've been clearly racially profiled as, but pale subservient beasts. So there's been, a, uh, he's flipping some things on its head in, in real time here for his own, you know, I, but they got to be pale. They're underground. They're basically vampire creatures, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what it seems like it's getting to. They've been underground for so long. And I think he does make kind of a stab at you know, thousands and thousands of years. He was remarking that he was sensible of much which was unseen before he went down the shaft, and that contributed to his comfort. But, oh, here we go. Ages ago, thousands of generations ago, man had thrust his brother, man, out of ease and the sunshine, and now that brother was coming back. Changed! So that's what led the thousands upon thousands of years of degradation led these small, chinless, albino, soft-handed creatures, laborers, uh, you know, into these tunnels to stay there. Yeah, that's, that's evolution, baby. Um, and, we, and we know that because the time traveler confirmed it because he stopped at many points along the way. He didn't just like, oh, I don't know, say something crazy like go 10 minutes in the future and then also, or 10 hours in the future and then just skip to 800,000. So we know this for <laughs> sure. Because right, he right. did his homework. No, he, he did his homework. He did yeah, his homework. He, yeah, he, he, he draws a straight line from uh, conditions from the Industrial Revolution straight down to this, you know, situation. Great. I love it. Straight line way down. Way <laughs> down. <laughs> way down. So right. far down. 200 yards down, in fact. 200 yards. It's not that far, actually. We've got creepy little people touching our time travelers. Now, this is the second time that he's been groped by a new species. He starts lighting matches, and they seem to uh, kind of fear the light for, you know, obvious reasons, because they're, they're, you know, creatures that must only survive in the darkness. So, you know, he kind of keeps them at a distance with these matches, and he starts exploring, and uh, he's happy to find, I'm just, I'm saying he's happy, but he finds a table with a very meaty meal on it. And um, so he comes to realize that the Morlocks are carnivorous. And, you know, naturally, what are they eating? There's only other one species that we've seen. It wasn't mutton. It, it wasn't definitely mutton, wasn't mutton. Because we know that there's no cows. There's no mutton in the future. Right. Wait, does mutton come from cows? Bjorn, where does mutton come from? I meant to look up mutton, but I wow. never did. You had I'm one sorry. other. It's anyway. Lamb. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, there's no. Oh, I'm sorry. Mutton. Okay. Just for everyone who's listening, who's been into the hot mutton talk, I'm just going to say it. Mutton is meat from a sheep over two years old and has a less tender flesh. In general, the darker the color, the older the animal. That's disgusting. That is very strange, yeah. Baby lamb meat, however, is pale pink, while regular lamb meat is pinkish red. Baby. So basically, mutton is um, old sheep. Old ass sheep. sheep. Gross. Wow. Wow, that's his preference. And I thought haggis was was a dangerous. So they thing. they kill they kill the lamb and then they just for two years they go wait for it. No no no, wait. the lamb needs to be two years old. Oh, and then they kill it. Oh, they're not letting it cure for two years. Correct. They have to wait until. Oh, okay. okay. That doesn't seem like it's waiting too much for that lamb. So mutton is actually young lamb. No, it's or old lamb for a sheep. Two years is apparently old. Really. Well, they kill babies, apparently, according to Wikipedia, and then they... Hey, look, man, I'm just reading Wikipedia, okay? <laughs> don't, start, don't start Googling everything I say, okay? 
Don't so anyway, we see this meat on the table, and it doesn't take a, a brain genius to figure out that the Morlocks are eating the Eloy and that they're carnivorous. Right. Um, so that's how their ecosystem works. The Morlocks eat some Eloy, leaving some others, I guess, to breed to create more. The Eloy are basically their livestock at this point. It's a very strange relationship where the Eloi are both the aristocracy and the livestock. And the Morlocks are ac- actually the more technologically advanced species because as the time traveler soon finds, he keeps exploring these, these caves and he finds great shapes like big machines. So he sees from there, well, these, this is a machine-oriented subspecies. They probably saw my machine and wanted to see what was up with it. So that's interesting too because who's really in charge here? Yeah, that seems odd to me. When you when you speak about it that way, it, it confuses me a little bit because it seems dichotomous. It's like different parts are he's trying to attribute to different parts of social life. You know, like on the one hand, they're more technologically advanced, but on the other hand, they're the one that's a, the subservient race. But then they eat the other people, which seems very odd. So, uh, wh- I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Like, where is that coming from? He tries to sum it up. A little bit later, I believe, after he climbs up out of the shaft and passes out. But we'll get to that in a second. That's another no, time he, he passes No, out. he passes out on the way up, too? Yeah. He, and like, then he's the, a low-endurance guy. And then the Eloy come back and fondle him awake. He likes to be fondled awake by either soft hands of the Morlocks or the childlike hands of the Eloy. Um so, so he's he so if he was uh if he, if he was a create your own character like when you create your own character on NBA 2K or something he would just have zero endurance he would just be I don't all think the way you could put it at zero but it's low yeah <laughs> <laughs> so he when he when he gets out of the shaft and he's like trying to understand what's happening he does after mulling over the problems of his own age in current time London foggy London town he quotes. Clear as daylight to me that the gradual widening of the present, merely temporary, and social difference between the capitalist and laborer was the key to this whole position. So that's kind of like to illuminate on what Taylor's talking about as far as the the separation of the two classes and the evolution of those. But the, the carnivorous thing is a little strange because, right, the relationship takes a weird turn when you're eating the person who's serving you food. Right. He says these Eloi were mere fatted cattle, which the ant-like Morlocks preserved and preyed upon, probably saw to the breeding of. It's a very strange society. I need you guys to put it in order from one to three, okay? From your from your top choice, you know, win, place, show. I need your win, place, show of which waiter you would eat. Win, place, show. Okay, so we got an Applebee's waiter. Okay. We got an Olive Garden waiter. Okay. And then we've got just your uh, a Red Lobster waiter. I need oh, to wow. I need to know just a Red Lobster waiter. Sorry, I didn't mean to say just. I love Red Lobster. That's where I went for every birthday up until I was 18. That shit was amazing. Win Applebee's because I'm nasty for those 39 cent boneless wings. I'm going to win Applebee's place. I'm going to go Red Lobster because Endless Shrimp Fest, get the fuck out of town. And third, I'm going to go Olive Garden because I could eat that bread until the end of time. Now, see, I'm not talking about the food. I'm talking about you have to eat the waiter at the end of the meal. You I know. know and I think the, the waiters went uh, obviously in back of house or snacking on whatever the restaurant is offering. So I did even more diligence. I went past Ooh. that and decided to 
you know, think about what I would be ingesting when I would be ripping open the stomachs of these waiters in the back as I was eating them Ooh, because like probably this. they hadn't digested their food in real time. It's like kind of like a, it's like a stuffed shrimp or something or a stuffed fillet where it's stuffed with, uh, you know, red lobster bits and those little biscuits and those like a jalapeno popper. Dude. Yeah. Like a jalapeno popper. Okay. Taylor Brown. I'm not. I'm a vegetarian. I'm not doing this. I don't want to eat anybody. I'm gonna just die. I'm gonna die. I'll just if it comes to it. I'll just. I'll just die. Plead the fifth. I'll just die of starvation. That's the that's the right answer. Al already answered it. There's nothing I can do to top Al's answer. He's right. The waiters are probably eating what's at the restaurant. So at that point, you're just ranking the restaurants. It does nothing to do with the the biological makeup of either waiter from any of these restaurants. We don't know any of their backstories. You could get any kind of waiter from any of these restaurants. There's way too many That's variables true. for me to really make there any are. sense of ranking the the cannibalized uh, uh, score for each waiter from each. It, it's it's just ridiculous as a premise. I'm sorry. I mean, remind me not to invite you to my hypothetical parties. <laughs> you know, I wish we could ask a Morlock who they would rather eat as far as like in, that in the Eloy chain. See, that would be more applicable if we had okay. one of them to ask, but it's a book. And so Wiener, we Wiener would be up there, I think, because she's no, the hot Wiener's babe. The, right? But Wiener, you don't eat till the end, man, because you're going to want to fuck her the whole time while you're eating. What are you going to do? How are you going to be fucking while you're, you know, if you eat her first? plot hole here's the the thing is he's down there he sees the machines he starts to run out of matches so the morlocks are like let's let's get him this is our chance he's got no more fire light or whatever and so they start laughing crazily scaring him and so he just basically runs back out the well as they're grabbing at him and then with the soft hands with the soft hands and then into weena's soft little hands and little kisses and it's after little baby kisses. yeah and it's after that whole experience when he's like i'm taking weena back to my own time again it hasn't been discussed if she consents to that or uh just various implications of space time but you know there you go you know it's just no consent just taking future <laughs> I'm future child lady to his own time where he may or may not continue to or start having sexual relations with her it's not clear time traveler it's me, Doc Brown. You can't bring Wiener back. <laughs> That's the crossover we need. Oh, um, I want to remark very quickly before Taylor Brown continues this opus into the text. Um, the time traveler remarks on something actually quite prophetic uh, at this time. He, when he discovers the underground shafts and he gets over the, the you know, astounding nature of these small, soft baby hands, of the Morlocks, he thinks to himself about society's tendency to utilize underground space for the less ornamental purposes of civilization, which I find incredibly interesting, such as think about the tube, um, you know, any type of underground railway or Mm -hmm. well system, um, or even like composting trash Mm. or burying dead people. Like Mm -hmm. this, this idea that society can only keep the beauty, the discernible beauty above ground mm. and push everything into the depths of the earth uh, that isn't as beautiful or ornamental, I find to be incredibly relevant. That's um, amazing. That's exactly how I'd clean my room in college when my folks would visit my dorm. I would just throw everything into the closet 
and just you know just close the closet and hide it and it, and my folks thought that I was doing all right I had yeah. everything together but yeah I've always you know, found that uh, burying it deep inside is usually the best solution that's the way to go suppression <laughs> yeah. my friends yeah. beautiful suppression yeah works on a personal level and and on a societal level it's my I recommend it highly. Yeah, I'll have to tell my therapist that. I, I think she'll have a, a number of things to say about that point. Wow. Hey, therapist, I was talking on my podcast with my two friends. Is that how that is that how that discourse is going to start? I mean, it it does sound incredibly douchey, but um, yeah, that's exactly how the discourse would go down. Let's give the mic to the only non-douche of this trifecta. Taylor Brown, please take away the text again, my friend. Don't put that pressure on me, because what if someone thinks that's me, and then, I, like, I could be the douche. I don't know. No, you're the, you're the non-douche. I think we've already, I think we've ascertained that. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm the guy who's going by his middle name, which is Bjorn, so that puts Bjorn, me in a, yeah. in a that's very... That's a bad start. Yeah, it's a it's super a bad, bad start. start. And then very, I didn't really yeah. even explain it. I just, like, came out the gate, like, Cher or it's, Prince... Yeah, it no, it's very, it's a little third Reiki, but we'll let it. Whoa, slide. whoa, 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 whoa! <laughs> How is Sweden involved in that? Get out of here! This isn't a German name, pal. Okay, this is Swedish. I am Swedish for the record, and every forevermore on the internet, I am Swedish. Fuck the Nazis! Let's get back to socialism. Taylor Brown, take it away, baby. <laughs> Don't let anyone tell you that the Nazis were socialists. That was a ploy. Wait, has someone said that? No, just. <laughs> Is that what the alt right is saying now? Oh, of course, yeah. Because because they're that they're the called, Nazis were socialists. Yeah, because they were the nationalist. They were the nationalist socialist party. Yeah, I was taught that they they combined it with communism and the Nazis. They put them in the oh, same my God. category. Get me out of this country. Yeah. I want. You know what? Now I want to go to the year eight hundred and two thousand seven hundred and one. I want to go find me a wiener, and I want to go eat fruit, and make friends with the more. Yeah, all of a now. sudden, it makes total sense why he would go there. He's like, I would need to get out of. I need to get out of a time where there's a party system of any sort, <laughs> and just and just a drastic schism between between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat to the fact where it's ir- irreparable, and it'll get to where we're going soon, which is just you know the eventual apocalypse. But you know we got to get to that point first. But we're I'm jumping ahead again. You guys are making me jump through time. It's not cool. So where were we at? Well, he, he he's he's emerged from the underground. He's okay. he's. Uh, concluded that he's going to take Weena back to his time without her consent, right. which is, again, not cool. Um, so the first thing he realizes is that, you know, with all of this new information, he needs a couple things, mainly weapons or a weapon and just a secure place to sleep. So they begin to wander along uh, the Thames River, and um, he remembers seeing a palace of green porcelain um, in the distance that he would... He, you know, to him, he's like, that seems like a great, a great place to sleep in. So let's head there. So they're walking along the river, heading towards, you know, heading down the yellow yellow brick road to the city of Oz. And uh, he sees it in the distance, but in the way is this very thick, dark wood. And so he loses sight of the palace. And so he's like, well, I'll just go the long way around. I'm not going through the woods. That seems mm, a little sketch. So he's walking along, and then he thinks to himself um, that without any other remaining animals, I, I guess other than sparrows, uh, the Morlock are feasting on the Eloi. And this is where he kind of comes up with his whole cannibalism theory. It's, you know, in our ancestral blood. So really, it's not a huge leap for humans to start eating humans throughout different time periods. It's been happening, if you think about it, the entire time we've been alive. We like to eat each other. It's 
in our blood. We oh, like yeah, to, we do. You know, so it's it's uh, yeah, it's part of the you know this new. It's basically like True Blood year eight hundred and two thousand seven hundred and one. <laughs> These are the, this is what real vam- vampirism is all about. But far, far. Yeah, they far just can't turn sexy. into bats. I mean, we don't actually know that they can't turn into bats. He's only again, he's only been there for like. He only week. gets there for eight days. Who knows yeah. what can happen? Just under maybe a week. maybe it's and a werewolf thing. Maybe, maybe they maybe have they you guys read werewolf before great book i actually read it in between parts one and two of this um time traveler podcast <laughs> <laughs> i highly recommend it it's a good book great story okay so um he's about to take weena back without her consent but before that he needs to go to the emerald city and he's right, on he needs his to go way. well he's, yeah because he still needs to so get is, his time machine. is this where his time machine is then is that we can't tell you that because okay. that would ruin the rest of we the know, podcast. No, we know where his time machine is. It's in right, the, it's in the, it's Sphinx, in the pedestal right? at the White Sphinx, but he can't right. get in yet. He needs to... But So what, what he, encourages he him to go to this emerald place then? I'm confused. He just remembers seeing a big green porcelain building far away, wants to That's go it. to it. Thinks it's okay. a good idea. Okay. So he's making his way there still. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. like 20 some odd miles. It's, it's, a, it's a ways. It takes a second. Wow. And um, when he does get there, he actually realizes that it's a museum. Oh, yeah. wow, excellent. So in the, uh, the, you know, the first part of the museum, he finds what looks like a megatherium, which, do you know what that What's is? What's a megatherium? It's a giant ground sloth that went extinct about 12,000 years ago from, from now or, or from 1895. Mm. Actually, no, from now, sorry. Twelve thousand so years. Twelve thousand years ago from either twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twelve thousand, give or take a hundred years. years. Meaning mm-hmm. not twelve thousand years prior to the year eight hundred two thousand seven hundred one. Right. Got it. Of course, uh, and also a brontosaurus. Um, what? And some, and even a glass casing from the Victorian era. It's like, hey, something from my time that lasted hundreds of thousands of years. How about that? And he keeps remarking on the things that he sees of his own time, too. He like, does. And just to go back a little bit, the River Thames, he, he notates, um, has shifted a mile from its present time location. So, you know, hundreds of thousands of years into the future, the River Thames has moved a mile. And to me, that kind of read like some foreboding nature of climate change. I'm and not sure if it's specifically, I think just the earth shifts drastically within that amount of years. So I'm sure that makes sense. Everything just kind of moved, which again, right. you know, kind of accurate. Got to say, you know, yeah, these little I details mean, that he just throws in there, are, you know, they're, ex- they're explicable they're, except for the sparrows, which is still, still very strange. If any of yeah. our um, illustrious listeners have any tips on what the deal with the sparrows is, you can email <laughs> us at insert email address here that would be great thank you yeah you can email us at i want to sound smart at parties at gmail.com right but we don't guarantee we don't guarantee that you will sound smart at parties we just no we we, don't guarantee we just had the desire again just to explain right but if you're emailing us then you would want to i get i don't know that's the email address i chose so there it is you can find it the easiest way to find anything about us smart at parties.com that's going to have all the stuff it's just one window now nowadays guys i'm not going to rattle off the twitter and the instagram and everything and the friendster and the live journal you, yeah you'll get everything there you'll get everything there our angel fire sites there the museum is a weird thing, Taylor, and I'm sure you felt this as well, because he comes across a couple things. As you said, he's seeing these dinosaur bones, these fossils, these, these, these preserved 
happenings of yesteryear, so very long ago. But he also comes across uh, because the future is so variegated in its in its lush greenness and plant life. He comes across some seeds in a glass case where he says that he would have liked to see patent readjustments that led to such splendid nature of the future. So that kind of goes back on him being an inventor as well. Um, but also I don't think that G GMOs, genetic, genetically modified organisms, you know, patent readjustments on seeds was even a thing back then in 1895. Do you guys know anything about that? No, but I feel like that's highly unlikely, right? Yeah, it right? seems unlikely. And yeah, I mean, I guess maybe the idea was there because horniculturally speaking, they've been splicing things forever, right? So maybe right. That, that that concept? But no, it seems, again, I, you got to mark one up for old Birdie. I mean, Birdie he's, is just tallying his futurisms left and yeah, right. With, yeah, with books like Dr. Moreau and Invisible Man in his head on deck, ready to come out of his uh, his fingertips for the next few years. Wow, Crazy. that's insane. I mean, Ho yeah. Homeboy got insane. to work and working. I mean, he was like the Woody Allen of book writers. Although, with, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Except yes. he wasn't a pedophile. No, he kind of like maybe. It, what do you mean he wasn't no, he a was. pedophile? He, I thought he married his 14 oh, sister. Oh, you're right. Cousin. He is. Was she 14 at the time? The cousin? No, she wasn't 14. No. We're talking we're, about Birdie, right? Yeah, Birdie. Back on Birdie. Yeah, Birdie went to town on his cousin, but she wasn't 14. Yeah, I that think. was just weird. But the Weena thing is a little pedophilic. I got to right? mix up with Jerry Lee Lewis. The common mistake. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they got three right. names, man. I mean, what do you want me to do? Remember every three named Dolt in this town? God damn it. I'm not going to remember you with your three names. Joseph Gordon Levitt, I don't remember you either. <laughs> fuck you. 500 days of fuck you. <laughs> Jeez. I needed that laugh. That's the first time I've belly laughed in 11 days since I talked to you guys last. Um, also in the museum, because the museum is such a strange passage of a few different pages. Like, you're, we're, we're kind of sped along this fast track of 800,000 years in the future, lose a time machine, meet this little baby girl that I'm into. Holy shit, they're vegetarians. Oh my God, what am I doing here? Fucking time machine's gone. Look at these ape-like ghosts, these troglodytes of the future. Gotta go to this museum. And now you're in the museum and you're actually kind of close to the end of the book now. And where Birdie could have spent more time kind of elaborating on the time traveler's escape, he actually spends a lot of time in this fucking museum. Like he spends at least one chapter, one dedicated longer chapter than the others in this museum, which I found strange. Taylor, did you, did something hit you about that when you were reading it? Like, why are we getting so much about this museum when we could have had other things be a little bit more explanatory thus far? Right, we could have had more action scenes. We could have had more chasing. We could have had more... More like sexual terseness. sexual terseness, more more cannibalism, more explosions and gun gun warfare, and um, uh, did I say explosions and just anything that Michael Bay's this motherfucking shit right now? Like, let's get fucking action. I want to see Nick. I want to see Nicolas Cage coming in this movie. I want to see. I want to see a starring role for Nicolas Cage right now. He would be the Morlock. He would be the head Morlock for sure, dude. Yeah, and then. John Travolta's character from Battlefield Earth comes in and it's just it's just an orgy of shit. I was I love Nicolas Cage to sidebar here on about Nicolas Cage real quickly. I was in New Orleans and I was at St. Louis Cemetery number two. 
And inside of St. Louis Cemetery Number 2 in New Orleans, there is a pyramid structure, huge pyramid structure. Of course, it's a cemetery. It's above ground because I don't know if you know about the cemeteries in New Orleans, but they're all above ground because of the flooding. Because so of the floods, yeah. So they build these beautiful, you know, um, you know, I guess mausoleums. Mausoleums, mausoleums. I guess is what they'd be called. And they're above ground and they're beautiful and they put all of these family members in it. But like an eyesore, there's this giant pyramid. And we're and we're on this uh, tour of the cemetery when someone asks, Who's who's whose mausoleum is that? Who's that giant pyramid? And the answer, my friends, is Nicholas Cage. You can look this up. No shit. Additionally, the woman who was giving us the tour told us that Nicholas Cage built it because he felt as if he was cursed. He got cursed by someone with voodoo down in New Orleans years ago. And he had to petition the city. He had to get all sorts of money. He had to get backing. And he built the biggest monolith in the entire cemetery of like, you know, famous people from New Orleans and, and, and families and all this. And this dickhead just puts this giant monolith pyramid shaped in the middle to eradicate this curse. That's real. Voodoo is, voodoo is real. Right, and this story is real. You can Google this. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's the most insane thing any ever. So yeah, I believe it. Nick, he had to do. Luckily, he had the money to do that. Yeah, absolutely. He had to sell off a castle, but you know, he did. He actually sold his house in New Orleans. They said in order to build this. But you know what? Nicholas Cage has earned every dollar that he has. Yeah, that's crazy, right? So, like Nicholas Cage, our time traveler has uh, found his own monolith, but inside this is a museum. The Palace of Green Porcelain. Mm. That's right. Okay. So, so. so he's just kind of taking his time, right, Taylor? He's just kind of perusing things. Which he, I get. I, to be serious and answer your question, I mean, I would I would spend time in a museum because that's that's as any uh, museum advocate would tell you, that's the real time traveling, Al. That's where absolutely. That's where we. But <laughs> that was a really good plug. That was a really great museum plug right there. So he comes down to. Um, another hall where he finds a lot of machines. Again, he keeps stumbling upon these machines. He had his own machine. He found the machines down in the uh, Morlock tunnels, and now he's finding a bunch of machines that look um, like nothing he's ever seen before. So he's seeing evidence of uh, something that happened past his Victorian era, for once. This is really the only thing we're seeing. It's these machines, which he can't really identify. But what the machines do provide him is a mace-like weapon, which he yanks off of one of them as uh, something he can use against the Morlock. Choose your weapon. Yeah, fuck yeah. So he's like, he's like, yeah, I'm gonna, I can fucking smash some, some skulls with this thing, um, like a good riot cop. All of a sudden, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different shifting roles no in such this thing. new society. No such thing as a good riot cop. There's, They're all no, there's fucking bad. A cab bitches. De- I mean, A-cab. yeah, there's definitely no such thing as a good riot cop. They're not. Let's they're stop in- talking about cops. Continue. <laughs> so he does find this mace-like weapon, which I thought was weird too. Like you're in this museum. Actually, you're in this new world where a lot of things could serve as a weapon. Uh, against these Morlocks who, again, like don't really seem that threatening. They're tiny. They've got really, really soft, soft hands. hands. They moisturize. Really, really like soft. shea butter. Like they, the shea butter must be <laughs> fucking crazy in the future because like they're shaying. They're shaying underground all day. You know what I mean? Um, they're eating Eloy. They're greasing up their machines. They're moisturizing their hands. It's not... A, they're probably working out, too. It's honestly... Yeah. The society might be working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fuck the capitalists, dude. I just want to be an underground laborer with soft hands. 
That's what I want to do. Um, I did find it weird quickly, Taylor, before you, you go back into the text about the museum. I think Birdie had a moment, a meta moment himself as well when he was writing this museum scene because the time traveler enters what would be a library uh, or um, you know, a, a place where a lot of these historical texts have been kept. And he's observing the page rod of these books mm-hmm. whilst in the Palace of Green Porcelain. Mm-hmm. And the time traveler thinks to himself, and this is maybe the thing that stuck out most to me in this entire novella, the futility of all ambition. He says that to himself. Like he's right. seeing he's seeing this page oh. rot. He's seeing these bloated spines of these books that obviously no one's touching anymore. No one's oh. reading this bullshit. And in the confrontation of memorial, immemorial literature wasting away and losing meaning throughout the centuries, the time traveler at that point is just like, what the fuck is the point of all of this? Right. Why are calls, we writing books? Why are we an, doing an enormous waste of labor? Exactly. He's really harping oh. on the just the futility of life. <laughs> yeah. And that made me really sad. It almost made me want to put down the book because it's like, Bertie, why the fuck am I reading this if you don't think it's going to amount to anything, dude? And I think it's more of a comment on just the futility of uh, wage labor and, mm. you know, you get very little in terms of what your actual production is in terms of got it so he's a savage socialist he's a, i'm telling you he's a savage socialist it's like what do we do it like you know you savage. you work just enough to survive especially when you're you know plugging away as some sort of factory worker in the 1890s um even though hg wells himself wasn't doing that but you, you gotta have someone who can write to tell the stories to get the agenda passed <laughs> um so anyways taylor he's in the museum he's got he's his weapon Got He's his got weapon. his fucking weapon. And he needs you know more, what? though. He needs more. It's not he enough. He does. And what does he find shortly thereafter, my friend? He's, uh, he finds some camphor, which is a highly flammable waxy material, and uh, some dynamite. Just conveniently what? there in the museum. Well, how, you know, we all see dynamite in museums. You know, it's, yeah. it's a common thing. Not feature. a day goes by. Not a day goes by where I'm in the museum looking at dynamite from different eras. I'm actually sick of looking at dynamite. In yeah, museums, I'm tired. I'm, I'm tired of dynamite. Yeah. Overplayed it's little, artifact. It's a little cliche. Speaking Overplayed. of the dynamite, though, it turns out to be a dud. It does. Oh, really? You mean the 800,000-year-old dynamite isn't working? Mm, yeah, weird. Unfortunate. So he does find some camphor, though. Does The camphor is highly useful. Yes. Apparently, and yeah. okay. what else does he find right after Taylor? Oh, my God. I don't know what matches. He finds some. Oh, more right, matches. the matches. Right. Yeah, he right. finds another. He finds another box of matches, which is what he ran out of matches when he went down the first two hundred yard shaft and felt the soft right. hands. Sorry, for the first I time. missed the matches in my note. I'm gonna type that right now. And matches. He okay. overused them because because he's a super smart time traveler. He could build. He could build a time machine, but he didn't think to look around for anything flammable, so he didn't have to waste his matches. Also, what kind of great matches did they have back then where you could just keep lighting them like like i'm how do you i can't light matches quickly in succession it's just like too big of a pain and then they break a lot i'm not a not good with matt maybe it's just me does anyone else have trouble with matches like that? i'm not a match guy either like when i try to be a match guy it's more in the james dean i'm gonna light your cigarette kind of way but when it comes to like recreational match use nah nah i'm no match for it Ooh. All right. Well, they leave. They leave the museum, and they uh, they start approaching the forest that they had previously sidestepped. And uh, it's here where the Morlocks close in upon Weena and the Time Traveler. Because it's getting dark. It's getting dark. They're sensing 
hey, here's our time to strike. We like to, we're hungry. This is all we have to eat. This other guy looks a little bigger. There's probably a little more meat on his bones, even though he's got low endurance. It's probably fine. We'll make it work. We'll eat his organs. I'm sure they, um, you know, it's, uh, they make use of every bit and piece of the Eloy. They make it last. Like, you know, and that's really how you should consume meat. If you're going to do it, you got to consume, you know, the ears and the organs and all of it. Every part of the buffalo. Otherwise, it's a waste, and it's and it's immoral to to not eat to wait. You got to eat I'm, the yeah, heart with you. and the liver. You know, it's a lot of work. Guys. Don't it's throw a out, lot of work. Don't throw out meat. Just let it age for a couple of years while alive, and then call it mutton. <laughs> it's it's also around this time too that we get a little bit. Obviously, we've gotten some peeks into it behind the curtain here, um, but you know the Eloy have been typically carefree and rather lackadaisical, and he starts to have a thought, the time traveler does, um, and put this all together, especially as they're approaching this wooded forest as they're fleeing from the Palace of Green Porcelain, um, where he, he realizes that the Eloy, although you know the future descendants of capitalists, the, the, the bougie motherfuckers that we're railing against right now, um, that the Eloy are continuously becoming reacquainted with fear. And, and as, as resources have run out, for the civilized survival of whom they've imprisoned. So such as necessity for the Morlocks is sustenance, food. Um, and that returns to the sacrificing of them as an uprising of the Morlocks to perpetuate the divide of the class systems, which is... Whoa, yeah, that's heavy. It's heavy shit, dude. I mean, this is when Bertie was like, you know, Bertie was hot on his mutton at this point, you know, really trying to tie things in. Really stretching this mutton situation out over two podcasts listen man it's yeah mutton to worry about yeah it's mutton it it's mutton at all Ooh, mutton. you're ruining our podcast right now. mutton but a g thing <laughs> oh that's that good i good. like that one i'm ruining our podcast but you're not helping yeah so the morlocks are starting to swarm and um he throws a piece of flaming camphor at the morlocks but he kind of gets during this whole process he gets turned turned around um and it's very chaotic. And eventually he finds Weena dead at his feet. And I'm not really oh. sure if it was clear exactly what the cause of death was. Maybe it had to do with smoke inhalation. But Wait, she's... he did find her? I thought she just disappeared, never oh. to be seen again. Eventually he, le- he, he, he leaves her. But I'm pretty sure he finds, he finds her. her dead. He finds her dead. Although we can take a little, oh. a little edit pause to make sure that that's correct. No, I I like no. I like leaving the listener kind of on the edge of their seat here. Did she just disappear, or does he find her dead childlike body, to which he holds her tiny little childlike hands? Well, it says so. Instead of casting about among the trees for fallen twigs, I began leaping up and dragging down branches. Very soon I had choking smoky fire of green wood and dry sticks and could economize my camphor. Then I turned to where Weena lay beside my iron mace. I tried what I could to revive her, but she lay like one dead. I could not even satisfy myself whether or not she breathed. Oh, R.I.P. Weena. Brutal. Yeah, so it's like he just kind of finds her dead and she, she just... And it's not actually even clear if she's dead yet. He's just kind of... He's just given up on her. He's kind of... Get, he went from, I'm taking my child bride to my present day time to i think she's dead i'm gonna i want to bail <laughs> pretty natural progression there right pretty natural progression yeah i think he realized it's like this is the year 802,701 you know like i could just pretend like this never happened 
to in <laughs> and you know like because these these people get eaten all the time like it's very conceivable that that there will be no trial at back at base camp and you know the Eloy are, there's no consequence there's no societal consequences for him there's no police reports there's nothing he's got to worry about in that end so he's just kind of like it's kind of like dust the hands off like oh sh- damn it you know he's probably just realized you know I, I should probably just take myself back I'll t- back to present day what I'll do is I'll grab like a couple flowers to show my friends but I probably I probably overplayed my hand. I got caught up in the moment about taking the future person back to my present day. I that's I don't ha, he, he, I don't know what the ramifications of that are. So he's basically just acting like a celebrity or politician before there was Twitter. One hundred percent. Also, Birdie had the thing like H.G. Wells had the thing of being the womanizer too. So mm. you know he 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 go out and dong his cousin or his students or whatever and just like not live to worry about Hold it. On. Another. Hold on, did you say dong? Yeah, his cousin or students. Yeah, you got dong. You know, like you he's, dong he's just donging them. Yeah. Okay. So these it just another trolley is gonna come around. He doesn't care. He he's just it's off. I mean, he hangs out with all dudes anyway. For so sure. Uh, yeah. No, he has no idea how to handle women. Yeah. And so after the, after he finds Weena dead, he um rules everything to be an unlawful assembly and he starts cracking skulls um killing one what? of yeah oh, killing yeah. killing one of the morlocks and crippling several more and again there was no <laughs> no video of the incident so he's going to get away with it you know he's not going to get prosecuted this is a i mean i don't know i feel like okay don't don't we're triggering taylor brown we're triggering taylor brown i know i know hey don't, taylor i, I want to ask you something specifically yeah. about the text because I'm a little confused about this, and I'm wondering how you feel about it. Um, he, The time traveler from day one, and actually up until the end, and now that we're talking about this like kind of epic battle scene, not really epic because it's like, hey, dude, pick on someone your own size. I mean, I know that the time traveler is just trying to survive and shit, but he is disgusted with the Morlocks from day one, and he never, ever empathizes with them throughout the entire story. That's not true. Are you sure? He says, But when I had watched the gestures of one of them groping under the hawthorn against the red sky and heard their moans, I was assured of their absolute helplessness and misery in the glare, and I struck no more of them. Gotcha. Okay. I missed that. Wow. After he's done raging against them with his nightstick, (laughs) he does have a moment of... uh, Post rage empathy and but he's already you know damage is done up until that point it seems like his disgust his disgust with the morlocks was a direct consequence of the amiable and indolent nature of the alloy right well it's also his inherent classes for sure and in and part of that inherent classism is that the fact that the alloy have retained more human-like attributes than the morlocks have like that's part of his his prejudice in classism. More, I would call it more civilized. I wouldn't say more human. Right. Well, I mean, they've got like noses that see the Morlocks don't have chins. Oh, you mean their features? features? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. see. I mean, except the hands, the baby hands. Um, right. I'm just, I thought that was weird. Basically, he can fuck one species and he can't fuck the other. So he doesn't. Or like he would like, no, I mean, he would like to fuck one species and he doesn't right. want to fuck the other one. Again, because right. of his inherent classes. Right. Inherent classes. Right. His inherent classes, and also we're taking his perception of it. Maybe the Morlocks are actually like I don't know. Maybe they're kind of maybe they're maybe we would like maybe we would be more attracted to them than he would be. Maybe he just doesn't. Maybe he's just not into them as much as some other folks would be. Right. 
I do like a soft hand on a woman. You know, real and soft. I'm not, hand. I'm not a big chin guy. I don't like chins. If I saw a Morlock right now, That's I'd probably true. want to take it out to a chinless dinner. You know, no napkins. Morlocks yeah. don't need napkins without chins. That's <laughs> that's an added. That's a silver lining. Yeah, you're saving napkin space on the planet. You know what I mean? Like, keep those trees up, baby. Don't cut down those trees for napkins. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So. So he's killed a couple Morlocks in this epic battle. Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm assuming is we're kind of getting towards the end. Yeah, Very close. We're closing it, closing it. And then so, you know, he looks for Weena's body after the fact, but can't find it. Oh, well. Yeah, again, just kind of wipes his hand clean, hand, hands clean of that one and just moves on his merry way. And so after that, he starts heading for the White Sphinx, where he will hopefully be reunited with his time machine. And he says, I grieve to think how brief the dream of the human intellect had been. It had committed suicide. The rich had been assured of his wealth and comfort. The toiler assured of his life and work. And I find that, uh, again, a very strange phrase. The toiler assured of his life and work. And the rich assured of their wealth and comfort. It's The assurance of one is a little better than the other, I think. For sure, absolutely. <laughs> For assurance. But again, our narrator is, uh, you know, he's very much of his time. He's an inventor. He's enjoying mysterious funding. Nobody knows. He's <laughs> right. No one knows where he's getting his money. He's got a bunch of dude friends. He's yeah. got. He's enjoying. Uh, he's enjoying white privilege, to say the least. Definitely. <laughs> he even calls this balance perfect twice on this page. He calls he it a does. perfect balance, which again yeah. is just like kind of gross. Especially concerning what he's just seen. Like, that's not the perfect balance. <laughs> and he just wasted, like, more... He just wasted a few Morlocks. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. absolutely. The balance of being cattle and also the ruling class somehow, that doesn't make any... That, that doesn't, seems, yeah. Seems like things are a little off. I don't know, though, because the ruling class is the one that would be softer upon an uprising, you know? I mean, they would be the cattle. It's not an uprising, though. It's an equilibrium. Or at least oh, so okay. he, you know, or so he kind of suggests. Like this is how society works. He, they, you know, the Morlocks keep the Eloy populated so that they can eat them. But also, you know, again, it's not it's not as simple as a working class ruling class uh, relationship anymore. It's kind of, you know, metastasized into. E E eating one another definitely complicates. Definitely things. complicates. I, 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 would, I would definitely say that part would complicate. But yet, like, he still he still thinks they make their clothes. He eat they eat them, but he they also yeah. clothe them. I guess they don't want them to get. I guess they want them to like live a little. I mean, if anything, the Morlocks are nice people. They're like, here, we'll make you look nice for a while. And then at the end of the day, we're going to eat you, but you're going to have a nice right. life. But the, the thing is, is that it necessitates it. Like they've pushed okay. the Morlocks into this underground tunnel ventilation system. Also want to note here, speaking about it really quick, that the under, this is really interesting. The underground mines and tunnels of the Morlocks were based on Wells's experience from childhood as his family spent the majority of their time in a basement below their father's shop. Wow, that's creepy. Isn't that really just kind of sad to think about that? Well, that shows you who he, uh, the author, empathizes with. Yeah, he identifies clearly more with the Morlocks. And so back to it, the thing about the Morlocks is like... Eat the rich. They're eating... The, oh, how did I make, not make this connection before? They're eating the rich. Oh, my God. Mark another one up on the board for Birdie. 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 He came up yeah, with when Eat did, the Rich, When too. did the phrase Eat the Rich start? That Probably with Birdie's no Big clue. Boy, dude. Birdie's big boy, <laughs> also known as the time machine. Okay, so and so Bjorn, it's necessary for the Morlocks to to eat the Eloy though, because they've been subjugated into this underground tunnel system where they don't have anything else to feed on. 
So wait, were you siding with the Aloy, Taylor, or Bjorn Bro? Can I just bring something up really quick? Yes. So Eating the Rich is not only an Aerosmith hit, which actually I didn't know it was an Aerosmith song. Least favorite band of all time. <laughs> um, according to an article in the Toronto Sun from 2017, this socioeconomic branch of cannibalism has been celebrated in books and films. It originated with 18th century philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Oh, no shit. Of course. Everyone knows Jean-Jacques Rousseau. When the people shall have nothing more to eat, they will eat the rich. So that's where it comes from. So Bertie, I mean, that was probably a good hundred years before Bertie or H.G. Wells even got around to writing this, exactly. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was. Okay, completely. That's fun. So there I you like go. that. Here on, here on, we would like to sound smart. At, we want to. We sound want smart. to sound smart. We, smart about. <laughs> <laughs> we would prefer to sound intelligent <laughs> at social functions. No. The podcast is called We Would Like to Sound Smart at Parties. We want uh, to sound like to, smart at parties. We want, we're really pronouncing it. Oh, yeah. Got we're really, really trying. Mind. We're really trying okay, to. Okay, hold on. I'll start the process. <laughs> the podcast is called We Want to Sound Smart at Parties. And we'd like to thank you for listening right now. And we hope you're getting smarter. And as we wrap up the book, hopefully, I'm thinking we're kind of getting towards the end, gentlemen. Can We yeah. We are. We, we hope you're getting smarter while we are revealing our stupidity. Yes. <laughs> right. But that's kind of the point, right. right, guys? I mean, we we weren't intelligent to begin with. That's why through this process. I mean, if you guys stick with us by episode, I don't know, 50, I mean, we're going to be like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and uh, with the, the amount of uh, knowledge we're going to be dropping. So, okay, kind of getting towards the end of this book, he is now back in the Sphinx in the white sphinx and does he have his levers so he can get back in this time machine? sorry he's still heading there he's still heading okay. right yeah okay. he does a lot of pondering while he reminisces about his journeys from to and fro also and, okay. as a forest fire is raging behind him right like what yeah he you know when he threw the camp for and started like this napalm death forest fire that weena probably died from smoke inhalation of that's probably <laughs> what killed her. that's probably what killed her so he killed her um, you heard it here first on, we would prefer to sound smart at social functions. Um, so he's like, he's really taking a sweet ass time. Not only does he has, have this forest fire behind him and not only is he trying to still get the fuck out of the future, but he is pondering yet. Yeah, as Taylor said, he's having all of these huge epiphanies over, you know, kind of recoursing the past. I think we're at seven or eight days here still that he's yeah. been there. Um, which is really odd because he should just be hightailing out of there right. at this point, but he's not. He's he's trying he's trying to assimilate everything, right. and he's having these epiphanies while at the same time telling himself it may be as wrong an explanation as mortal wit could invent it. He's telling it is how the thing shaped itself to me, and does that I give to you, which again, it, ugh, just when you're starting to believe this guy, you're like, oh, is he just pulling? Is he just pulling my leg again? <laughs> But anyway, you know, Wells, I think himself decides he wants to wrap this shit up. It's a novella. He's got, a, you know, a deadline to hit. He's got four more books to write in the next five years. Um, so the time traveler finds that the valves of the bronze pedestal at the Sphinx are now open. So no struggle there. Which is really strange. And he goes in there. He finds a little apartment where he finds the time machine sitting in a corner, which has been all oiled and cleaned by the Morlocks very nicely and conveniently. So it's just ready to go taylor do you know why that also confused the shit out of me why would they clean his time machine i think maybe this whole time they were just trying to tell him like hey man we fixed up your shit it's ready to go oh you think they were helping Mm. him 
Maybe mm. it's possible because they weren't trying to kill him when he went down the shaft and felt the soft hands. Like there was never any attempt on the time traveler's life from the Morlocks, as far as that we can read. It's right? yeah, it's not really clear if there ever have malicious intent towards him. Sort of. It just seems like they do. They, I mean, to him, they're dangerous. But again, that's his perception. We don't right. know. We have to take his word for it. I personally feel like, and this is, and I, I much prefer the idea that they've been trying to help the time traveler out this whole time. I right. think that he returns to the Sphinx with the pedestal being open so that they can trap him and eat him. That's that's what he thinks. He thinks they're trapping right. him. He's like five weenas in one. You know what I mean? Mm. He's like a pack of wieners. He's the gold. He's the golden goose. Yeah. He's like a waiter stuffed with Red Lobster, Olive Garden, and Applebee's. Yes, exactly. That's how big he is comparatively mm-hmm. to the Eloy. Right. Yeah. So he finds these gates open. He fucking hauls ass inside. A fight doesn't ensue, but they start grappling him again with their soft hands. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful, soft. They're beautiful, soft, soft shea butter hands of the future. <laughs> and what does he do then, Taylor? Well, little did they know that this thing travels into the future. Yeah, they had no idea. So, yeah, just as they're about to close it, close in, he just kind of, you know, gets the levers in position and just launches himself into the way, way future. And he says... Even more? Yeah. Even more. Than oh, where he is we're now? Go- we're going yeah, he so fucks far. up. Just, yeah, we're you, not done yet, Bjorn. You buckle up. You buckle up, I Bjorn. I thought we were getting close <laughs> to the end. We are. It, 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 it comes, you know, things speed up. Okay. Shit yeah. still gets a okay. little weird, yeah. though. He says... As I drove on, a peculiar change crept over the appearance of things. The palpitating grayness grew darker. Then, though I was still traveling with prodigious velocity, the blinking succession of day and night, which was usually indicative of a slower place, returned and grew more and more marked. This puzzled me very much at first. The alternations of night and day grew slower and slower, and so did the passage of the sun across the sky, until they seemed to stretch through centuries. Eventually, the earth had come to rest with one face to the sun, even as in our own time, the moon faces the earth. So, as opposed to when he was first time traveling and everything was flapping and, you know, consistent succession, everything starts to slow down because presumably the earth stops spinning as quickly. I think so, yeah. And is kind of just settling into a float, um, you know, as it's the earth is dying and the sun's decaying um and that's what you know that's what you're seeing as you know the earth stops doing what we're used to it doing and that's where birdie might have been wrong finally for once in this whole voyage and journey because when the time traveler leaves the future he continues over 30 million years deeper into it to witness the fate of the planet but in context Wells' vision of the future is happening much too soon, as it will actually take a few billion years for the sun to grow larger and engulf the Earth. Correct? Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that's what he's saying is going to, ha- is going to happen, because like, the sun is still a distance away. Right. It's just not, the Earth's not moving anymore. It's just stuck. So I feel like, I don't know if that makes any, if that makes any sense scientifically, but right. that's what's happening. Um, and so where he stops, the sky's no longer blue. Um, where he first stops anyway, the sky's no longer blue and there's... Where he first stops? Yeah, he's, it gets he's, deeper. Some, yeah. yeah, there's some harsh red rocks, but it's all cast against still like some intensely green vegetation. And now we're on a beach and we see an endless sea with no waves. And since there's no wind, there's no wind, there's no real... No tide, very little oxygen, yeah. very few signs of life overall. And then come the huge crab people. 
Yeah, bro. There's crab Are crab you ready people. for this, Bjorn? There are large yeah, ass crab people who try to attack him as he's sitting on the beach observing 30 million years into the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the 30 million the, yeah, we are the, now? Yeah, the crab people start and then at last more than 30 million years hence the huge red hot dome of the sun had come to obscure nearly a tenth part of the darkling heavens. So we are closer to the sun, maybe not like where it's, you know, you're right up against it, but it's definitely it's it's closer. It's closer. And right. yeah, there's no trace of at least at first animal life and it looks like an eclipse was beginning. He thinks it's either the moon or Mercury, which actually I would imagine would have been long swallowed up before. Um, but, you know, again, he's just guessing. And at, he does feel a cold wind. And this there's a showering of white flakes. And the sky is now absolutely black. And then he finally sees a sign of life. And it's pretty galling. He says, a round thing against the red water of the sea. It was a round thing, the size of a football perhaps. And the tentacles trailed down from it. It seemed black against the weltering blood-red water, and it was hopping fitfully about. So that's pretty terrifying, and that's enough for him. Yeah, that's is. enough. That's <laughs> enough. So he he's like, I'm I'm out of here. I'm he's going done. back to the present. He's and I think finally was, done. And it's very bold to go finally. that far into the future, especially like, how yeah. do you know once you get there that you will be able to even breathe? Right. Didn't you also tell us last episode that there was the fear of him landing in some sort of like you know, if he landed inside of a building or inside of a rock or of the earth shifted, right. then he would forevermore being nothingness. Right, exactly. Right. So, I mean, it's pretty bold to take a $30 million, or $30 million, 30 million year leap. Yeah. And what if he's ended, what if that beach is now ocean and he's in the ocean? For yeah, sure. He can. But Good we luck. know a few things about both H.G. Wells and the time traveler at this point. They don't fuck around. They go 10 hours <laughs> into the future, 800,000 years into the future, and then 30 million years into the future. There's no moderation here. It's all or nothing. So I'm thinking personally that Wells decided to kind of wrap up the novella this way because he was actually into pretty heavily into um, eschatology, which is the theology surrounding the final events of history, not mankind, just the final events of history as is. Um, and the ultimate destiny of humanity and the end of times in that regard too. So I think he wanted to touch on that a little bit, although he wasn't incredibly religious eschatology was a really popular, uh, sect of theology at the time, because obviously in the late 19th century, you know, things were confusing. We didn't have the technological advances that we do now. They were kind of future tripping and predicting things, uh, in a much, you know, in a, in a crazy religious fanatical way. And I think he was hot for that a little bit. So that's why he went 30 million years into the future to predict what could possibly happen. Yeah. I mean, and it has nothing to do with really the sociological implications throughout the rest of the book, which is, you know, again, a a story of class revenge and, you know, 30 million years into the future, especially with the giant crowd people, there seems to be, there's no social social ramifications in this in the present state of the the earth. It's just <laughs> it's just revelations from there, baby. So he he fi- he goes thirty million years in the future and finds these crabbed people, and this finally, mercifully, is the end of his future for now. Because he comes so yeah, so he comes back, mm-hmm. and you know now he's wrapped up his story in real time, and no Got nobody it. really believes him. No one at all. Except the narrator. 
Yeah, which really fr- it really and it really frustrates him. Really, so he's he's not happy. But I mean, he kind of built his own grave there, and he sure. even shows them some flowers that Weena gave him, mm. and the time machine itself, which is now outside of his uh, of his house because that's where the pedestal was in relation to where he had traveled from within his house. Mm-hmm. And um, after that, the narrator says that he tried to. Uh, see the time traveler again after that, but the time traveler hasn't been seen for three years. So he disappeared. So what happens, Bjorn, just to give you a a quick uh, wrap-up here, synopsis of the end, is that, of course, no one one believes him, so everyone fucking bails from the mansion, from the dinner party. The narrator from the first frame, meaning the the Mm -hmm. beginning of the story, which we covered on on Mm -hmm. episode one of this, does come back a frame narrative, the frame narrative That's what we precisely. It's, it's so, frame the first narrative. frame was the narrator of a dinner attendee, the second frame was the time traveler, obviously explaining mm-hmm. his travels through time. When he returns, it goes back to the first frame of the first narration. Mm. So, the the narrator, then the, the dinner guest, the unnamed dinner guest, does he's like the only person who kind of believes the time traveler. Mm. So, he goes home mm. and then he comes back, and as he comes back to the time traveler's mansion. He sees the time traveler kind of bustling about, but and basically the time traveler's like, "Yo, dude, I'm super busy. Thank you for believing in me. Thanks for coming back over. I'm peacing." So he gets back in Birdie's big boy and takes off, and that's when the epilogue kind of ensues to where um, he uh, the the narrator has Taylor uh, uh, save me on this one. the The last page of this novel, the narrator has like a little bit of a of a shift. Or not a shift, but he has this like beautiful monologue about the nature and uh, uh, sustainability of man. Am I correct in that? He does. Do you want to read it? We should read that. Oh, yeah. One cannot choose but wonder, will he ever return? It may be that he swept back into the past and fell among the blood-drinking hairy savages of the age of unpolished stone, into the abysses of the Cretaceous Sea or among the grotesque Saurians, the huge reptilian brutes of the Jurassic times. He may even now, if I may use the phrase, be wandering on some plesiosaurus-haunted olytic coral reef, or beside the lonely saline lakes of the Triassic Age, or did he go forward into one of the nearer ages in which men are still men, but with the riddles of our own time answered and it's wearisome problem solved into the manhood of the race for I, my own part cannot think that these latter days of weak experiment fragmentary theory and mutual discord are indeed man's culminating time I say for my own part he I know for the question had been discussed among us long before the time machine was made thought but cheerlessly of the advancement of mankind and saw in the growing pile of civilization only a foolish heaping that must inevitably fall back upon and destroy its makers in the end If that is so, it remains for us to live as though it were not so. But to me, the future is still black and blank, is a vast ignorance, lit at few casual places by the memory of a story. And I have by me, for my comfort, two strange white flowers, shriveled now, and brown and flat and brittle, to witness that even when mind and strength had gone, gratitude and a mutual tenderness still lived on in the heart of man. Wow. Wow! Let's give yeah. Let's give let's that's give let's give our host to Taylor Brown. Yeah, one of the three hosts. Yeah, I, yeah. A few stumbles there, but you know it's 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 no, a that nice was, little epilogue. that was beautiful, Taylor Brown. I love that epilogue. Let me let let me just say, guys, wonderful job on the research. I mean, well, and if you want to know what happened to the time traveler, there is mm-hmm. a sequel. 
Now, it wasn't written by H.G. Wells. It was written by Stephen Baxter um, like 100 years after the fact. But it was authorized by the Wells estate. And, he, and in, in that sequel, he does go back to the future in order to save Weena. But things are different. I haven't read the book. Oh, wow. I haven't read the book, so I'm just going to tease it as such. But Well, does... I love that. Maybe, maybe, maybe in the future we'll be able to tackle that. Um, again, I would like to thank Alex and Taylor Brown, Alex Moore and Taylor Brown, for all their dedicated uh, research. You are listening to the We Want to Sound Smart at Parties podcast. You can find us at smartatparties.com. And this second episode, gentlemen, I got to say, I think it's our best. Um, I hope you join us next episode as we continue to learn. I will tease the next book a little bit. We're going to be tackling the inspiration for Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, the 1899 novella by Joseph Conrad, Heart of Darkness. Thank you for joining us this episode and every episode as we try to get smarter. Um, thank you. You guys got anything to say? want to thank anybody? I want to thank you guys for just being so handsome and intelligent and making me smarter through the process. This has not only been fun, but incredibly educational and informational. It's a great review. That's a great review of the podcast. Thanks, Al. Infotainment. Thanks for the thanks, everybody. And thanks all the listeners. And uh until next time, uh join us at We Want to Sound Smart at Parties. Books. Well, I guess I wanted her sense we want to sound smart at parties.